and our best wishes to all our mothers today. Uh, I've been asked to, to announce to you who are mothers or uh, women who are of childbearing age even, uh, pick up, uh, choose, was it one of, one of each, uh, one candle and one of the bookmarks as you're exiting is just kind of a gift from our ladies uh, for, for mothers as well, so you be sure and do that. Uh, I'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 5 primarily today. I have to make a bit of a confession. I'm, I'm anxious in my flesh uh, about what's on my heart. Uh, I'm also encouraged uh, as well. Uh, I was going to ask you as we were singing that last song, uh, speaking of the glory of Christ, and uh, kind of put this question to you, is that your highest value? Uh, is the glory of Christ, the display of the glory of Christ, is Christ himself does he rank the highest in what you value? Uh, I think if that's true and if that's the context in which you hear my comments today, uh, you will be appreciative and my anxiety can kind of go away. Uh, if you hear it in any other context other than that, you're likely, you're likely to find something you wouldn't agree with. And so it's funny for me that uh, the issue of womanhood and even motherhood would become so controversial in our day where there are birthing persons um, and, and such a confusion of the language. Uh, but believe it or not, this is becoming a controversial subject uh, in our culture. What is a woman? We have a Supreme Court justice sitting uh, who refused to define that on the basis that she was not a biologist. Well. My littlest grandson's not either, but he can tell you what one is. Uh, and I don't want him on the superior court for sure. Uh, but I've been, this is a, I think you probably pity me sufficiently enough today uh, by this time, these many years to humor me in something. But for a long time, I felt like uh, we ought to do, as far as the church's recognition of mothers and fathers, we ought to do that on the same day. Uh, rather than separate that out because I feel in many ways like I'm preaching the same sermon for Father's and Mother's Day because uh, it is almost inconceivably biblically to view motherhood apart from a father or a husband. And so we pull that out of isolation sometimes on Mother's Day and try to concentrate on mothers uh, and we try to do that exclusive of the fathers because we're saving that for Father's Day. <laughs> So, so it's kind of like my proposal is, I'm not going to do that anymore. And like I said, I think you pity me enough to humor me with that, but I want to preach one time, uh, at least once, in regards to fatherhood and motherhood, and let that have its application uh, to both mothers and fathers. I will refer to mothers today, but I'll also be referring to fathers and husbands and wives and children. And it is... Mother's Day, the day that we set aside to recognize our mothers, and we have biblical mandate for honoring them, Exodus 20, 12, one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, uh, the, the scripture writers tell us it's the first commandment with a promise attached to it. Honor your father and mother so that your days may be long in the land in which you are going to inherit, and speaking that uh, to the Jews, of course. 
But I think there's relevance in that as well for every culture where the mother and the father are properly honored. It is conducive for their sustaining themselves in any land, whether it's America or or Jerusalem or Israel, uh, whatever the land is, a people who refuse to honor their mother and father, which essentially is to say to assign a proper value to them, will not last long in the land. And so for children today, uh, I challenged the Sunday school class this morning to, uh, from the book of James to be not only hearers but doers of the word to maybe set aside honoring your mother and your father this week as the word and now you've heard it in Sunday school. Now go about determining how you best do that this week and, and test yourself whether you are deluded or not. And I think the same is true as well. But I want to speak this morning in regards to these mothers, motherhood. I chose from my text Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 33, uh, specifically for the reason Paul gives in verse 31 and 32. And also this is in the context of this general, general submission uh, as we work through this and in 1 Peter as well. But in verse 22, Paul picks up, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as, as Christ is also head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be there to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself, the church, in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife, he who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul says this this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. In chapter 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it shall be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And he goes on to the exhortation of fathers here as well. So let's pray together. Father, Thank you for this day. Thank you for this special day that we focus our attention on parenthood, really. And Father, I pray that by your grace, you will help us to see this beautiful design of yours, this magnifying your glory design. Lord, I pray that women and men today may, may get a taste of the joy and the harmony of each one living out their particular designated roles within the marriage and as mothers and fathers. So, Lord, I pray to the end that this would be an encouraging word. Obviously, the word is always challenging to us as men and women and as Christians in general. But, Father, 
let the word be sanctifying. You have prayed in John 17 that the disciples would be sanctified by your word and your word is true. So Father, let that truth come to bear upon us today. Lord, I pray as well that those in this room might acknowledge the fallible person in the, in the pulpit and not take my word as the authoritative word, but that like the Bereans, that they might search the scriptures, whether these things be true. And I'm convinced, Father, that when they find these truths and embrace these truths, they will flourish as you have called them to be, especially as Christians. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wanted to think this morning, uh, really in regards to what makes her honorable. I entitled the message Honorable simply uh, because I'm not focusing specifically on mothers this morning. I want to include fathers. I want wives, husbands, mothers, fathers. I, I, wanna, I wanted to think about what is it, what is it that should render them honorable? What is, what is their value? And that's important because that's essentially what the word honor means is to assign value to. We honor Christ. He is the highest value. So whatever honor I render to my wife and whatever honor she renders to me and children, whatever honor you render to your parents is not to exceed or supersede your honor to Christ. Our first devotion and loyalty is to Christ. That's an, that's an important context, I think, for this. So underneath that devotion, that loyalty, that honoring, what is, the, what is the honor that we are to assign to mothers, to wives, and to husbands, and to fathers? In Genesis 1.27, I think the first, the foundation of that honor is that it is by design. It is by the design of God, she is to be honored. Mothers, the father is to be honored. Humanity is to be honored. In Genesis 1.27, it says there that God created him, male and female, created he them. Now we know that Eve was taken from a rib from Adam and fashioned into a woman and presented back to Adam. And so she wasn't directly created from the dust. There is a distinction in the way that she was brought into existence. But we are told clearly that they are both created in the image of God. Uh, it is sad in our generation that there are mothers those who wear the title as mothers, whose motherhood has been so negligent and so absent in many cases that it may be fine, hard to find ways to honor her, real ways to honor her. But if you have nothing else, you can honor her in that she is created in the image of God. In many ways, uh, that excludes every mother from being dishonored in regards to that. Now, that's our prayer, and, and we're thankful for mothers who have lived godly lives and lived lives and nurtured us in so many ways. And there are a million practical things for which you can value your mothers today. But at the root of that is that she is created in the image of God. Your mom, children, your wife, husbands, is created in the image of God and is due respect in regards to that, if for no other reason. There are many other reasons, but if for no other reason, she is created in the image of God and she is worthy of honor there. In Genesis 2, 18, she's worthy for honor in regards to her design and that she was given as a helpmate or a helper corresponding to man. 
I love it in, in that passage where the Lord has Adam to go out and he names all the animals and they come by uh, with the assumption that we're two by two and they were male and female. So Adam has the authority to name all of these animals whatsoever he will. But what's painfully obvious to Adam surely was that of each animal there are two kinds. There is a representative, there is a male and female, there is a distinction there, but there is no one like that for Adam. There is no one corresponding to him. And she is to be honored because she was brought into existence as a helper to Adam, as someone who is corresponding to him. She's created in the image of God just as he is. She has a moral reasoning, a moral capacity just as he is. She's not brought into existence as a brute animal to be exploited in any way the man chooses. She is a corresponding helper to him. She is created in the image of God and she is worthy, worthy of honor. In that design. In Genesis 2 24, she is also worthy in that design of honor, in that she is uniquely fitted for the covenant of marriage. In that passage, the Lord creates her and brings her to Adam. In verse 22, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from Adam, the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man seeing her says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, Moses writes, the, the author here, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is prior to the fall. So she is to be honored in that she is uniquely created to be a companion in this covenant marriage, this demonstrative of the oneness of the flesh of the woman, of the man and his wife, this covenant of marriage. She is to be honored because there's no one else fitted for that. No matter what the culture says today, Men and men are not fitted for that. Women and women are not fitted for that. Female and male are fitted for that. They are the appropriate corresponding genders or sexes in, in which that covenant is made a reality. Every other supposed covenant outside of that covenant of marriage is a false covenant. It is a false, it is falsely called a marriage. This is instituted from the very beginning. And your mother is uniquely fitted for that. Dads, you can't fulfill her role in that. And wives, you can't fulfill your husband's role in that. Each of you have a role in that covenant relationship. You are uniquely fitted, mothers, for that relationship. In fact, I think created specifically for it. In that relationship, in Genesis 3.20, this becomes essentially the standard. In fact, in Matthew 19.1 through 9, you remember the Pharisees come to Jesus and they want to they question him in regards uh, to, the, to, the, to the laws, in regards to marriage. And Jesus cites to them or they suggest to him in regards to divorce. Is it proper for a man to put his way as wife? And Jesus says, basically, you err not knowing the Scriptures. What did the Scriptures say? And he goes all the way back to this. This, by the way, is the standard. <laughs> Whatever mercies God may have provided for in the fallenness of man, this is where we begin the reasoning. 
And that's exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to press the issue and then Jesus takes it back to the original design, this fittedness of man and wife for life, joined to one another to constitute a family as it were. And he returns them to this standard. This is where you begin your reasoning. And then, of course, they cite Moses' command or Moses' permission that they put away their wives. And Jesus acknowledges the reason for that mercy through Moses was because of the hardness of men's heart. There was a greater damage to be done by not allowing it in the case, he says, of immorality or adultery or abandonment. Some would say that as well. So Jesus is saying, look, don't start your figuring from there. Go back to the design where I created man and woman and uniquely fitted them for this covenant union of marriage which is to last throughout their lives and to be non-violated by any other relationship approaching that as well. So mothers, you're to be honored in regards to that design. In Genesis 3.20, they were commanded this man and woman to be fruitful and multiply. Our mothers can be honored in that they are a part of this procreation. If, if, the, if she doesn't fulfill that role, then Adam doesn't produce that role in itself. She has a necessary and essential part of procreation, of populating the planet. The man is not called to do that alone. He is called into a relationship. That is her functional relationship to the man in that they together are to produce produce offspring, to, to multiply. And so she can be honored in that she is necessary for procreation, for the having of children. I think in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, I think as well as she is foundational in her role to the foundation of what is civilization. They are to multiply and the, and the, the generations are to grow. And that is essentially the beginning of the institution of, of family. I mean, that's a, that's a significant role to play in that for the man and for the woman. The mothers can be honored today and fathers can be honored by their children and by society today in that there is no procreation apart from their union and that there is no civilization apart from it. And if you don't believe that, look around, folks. I heard a statistic by Thomas Sowell in regards to in, right after the Civil War, up until the time in the 20s, that there was a kind of a recovering in the black community. And at one point there, the, the marriage rate in the black community was 20%. And then after World War II and after a lot of the civil rights movement came through, all the way to this day, it's almost 70% now married or uh, unmarried in the black community. And as we see that centralization of that family, husband and wife, mother and father in the family disintegrate, we see society disintegrate as well. It's not that much better even in the white community. Our marriage rates are falling apart. There are mothers trying to be mothers alone and fathers trying to be fathers alone. And without the union of them, the very foundations of civilization are being chipped away and eroded away. And take a look around you to see that God's design is the way we ought to be going. Listen, I I think this is universal. And you could say, well, this is a Christian perspective on marriage. Well, this is humanity here. 
Yes, this is the Christian perspective in, in regards to the scriptures, but this is God's design for civilization, for humanity. Move away, deviate from his design, and whether you're secular or whether you're Protestant or Christian, you are going to see the consequences of departing from the purpose for which you were created. I got hammers in my toolbox, and I can, I can show you the ones that I use for, uh, I, or screwdrivers, I can show you the ones that I use for chisels. They don't work very well. I departed from their use as a screwdriver, and in an emergency, I use them to chisel at something, and they're completely ruined, and they're, they're not efficient or good for anything anymore without some serious work on them. But I've got, in another drawer, I've got chisels, which I only use for wood, and they are functional, and they work properly. Why? Because I am not departing from the design of the tool. And as a culture today, we have departed from God's institution, the one that he designed, which includes a father and a mother coming together, a husband and wife coming together and producing children in that union and bringing those children up in that union. Mothers can be honored in that that is the significance of one of their roles in creation, that she is a part, along with her husband, of an orderly civilization. In fact, in Genesis 3.15, after the fall, she's really significant in that the remedy, the Savior, in regards to that fall into sin and our redemption from that sin is coming through her womb. Get rid of women, there's no womb for which the Savior to come through. I mean, that's a pretty significant role. She can be honored because she had that distinguished blessing to be the womb ultimately through which the Messiah would come, who would bring restoration, as it were, to God's design. So I make all those points to say this. We can honor our mothers today because they are a, an integral part of God's design for the universe, for, for the display of His glory ultimately, and instrumental even to the incarnation. In fact, demonstrative of it in some ways. We can honor them today simply as I've already mentioned by Exodus 20 verse 12 by divine command. We are to be honoring our fathers and our mothers. It is essential in that promise to the stability of a, of a civilization. Honor your father and your mother that your days that you may prolong your days in the earth. I mean, it's essential. Kids, you ought to grow up recognizing that the world that you want to live in has a direct link to how you honor your mother and your father. If you disregard them, disobey them, dishonor them in every way and find that 20 years from now you're living in a completely different culture, you've contributed to that because you have moved away from this valuing of them that produced a society that now you have to tolerate. And some generation down the way is going to have to try to restore that honoring of father and mother. And I do believe and I'm hopeful that we are looking at the generation that has realized the error of moving away from that. And is again returning to, to, to esteem their parents. And I pray that we continue to move in that direction. It is by divine command. God has commanded it. This is an imperative. It is not optional. 
And as I've said, depending on the mother, it may be difficult to honor her in some ways mentioned here. But at the very minimum, you can honor her for the role she fulfills in the design of God, ultimately. Another one is you can honor her for her role in the perpetual display of the gospel. And I'm drawing that from Ephesians 5, again, of the body of Christ is what I'm saying here. We honor her for her union as the bride to his wife, which I believe Paul is saying here is analog to Christ's union with his church. In fact, I wonder God could have procreated or brought about procreation in any way that he had chosen, but he chose to create a man and then rather than from the dust create a different individual as it were, he took the woman out of the man, breathed in her life, brought her back to the man and assigned that they should come together in a covenant relationship and be joined again and produce fruit through that. And I think that had everything to do exactly with Christ's ultimate union with the church. It was at the very earliest stages a perpetual gospel presentation. This is true universally, by the way. No matter that the world in its darkness is blind to the gospel presentation there, but every time there is a marriage, every time there is a covenant relationship in any culture, across any generation, across any millennial, it is a testimony of Christ's eventual union with the church. And the world is blinded to that. And it is no surprise to me at all that Satan has worked overtime to distort that union in every way possible, whether through divorce, whether through infidelity, whatever it is, ultimately gay marriage, and now we got transgenderism. In any way that he can blur or mar that relationship, he can distort the gospel presentation of it. There is no union that's permanent. There's a union, you say, in front of the altar, but then you go away and something happens and you break that union and people do it willy-nilly throughout their lives, partly in ignorance, but it is a distortion of the gospel message of a covenant between one man and one woman for life. She is to be honored in that her role and her husband's role are perpetual gospel universal witnesses in regards to their coming together in covenant relationship and their being made one flesh, their becoming one. She's honorable as well. And this was where my heart really rested this week. But she is honored by the sacrificial love of her husband. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, he says to the husbands, Husband, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. I couldn't help but thinking of Philippians 2, 5 through 8. So that's a, that's a model of how the husband is to love his wife. And so that he might, he gives himself up, up for her so that she, he might uh, sanctify her, set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word that, she might, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So he says, repeat, so husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And this was powerful to me. I think the, the woman is to be honored in that in that her husband loves her sacrificially. He has demonstrated her value in his sight by his sacrificial dying on her behalf for her good. I mean, that's stunning. 
I mean, her, surely her bride sees something of great value in his bride or intends to bring about something of great value in her bride in that he would lay down his life in regards for his bride, that he would set aside. And so husbands, we're to love as that way as well. In fact, the love of Christ, sacrificial love of Christ is the pattern by, of our loves for our wives. And in loving her that way, we, we render her honorable. We, we assign great value to her. And fathers, if we do that, our children see us doing that, then they will be more likely to assign a value to her as well. My father thinks she is valuable enough to sacrifice of himself for her good. She must have some inherent value. But we're losing that witness when fathers act apart from that. I mentioned Philippians 2, 5 through 8. But there is also a preferring of her above himself. I think sometimes most men, we talk to men and, and we say to those guys, you love your wife, oh, you better believe I love my wife. And you better not touch her because I'll, I'll, I'll lay down my life to protect my wife. And we say, well, that's a done deal right there. You might do that, you're bound to love your wife. Here's my question to us men in regards to honoring our wives and honoring the mothers that they are to our families. Will you lay down your life for her? Yes. But will you give up your preference for her, for her good? Will you, will you lay aside your privilege as head in your house for her sake, for her good? Will you sacrifice the thing that you think is a priority for you at the moment and, and render or yield to what is a priority in her life in, re, in, in regards to her sanctification and ultimately her good. It's one thing to say, I'll lay down my life for my wife, but it's another thing to say, I won't go play golf today for my wife's sake. That's a whole different kind of dying, but it's dying just the same, right? Or I won't, I won't go to the race today with my buddies for my wife's sake, for my wife's good. I won't go fishing today for my wife's good. I will choose what is good for my wife and preferable for her over my, my own inclinations today. Because I assign, I prefer her above my own privileges. That's a different kind of love altogether. She's honored by the love of her husband when that love is set sanctifying. His love for her has a, has a way of setting her apart unto something greater. It, it is such a love that it sets her apart as unique among all other relationships. This is my wife. This is the one in whom I am entered into this covenant with and we have become one. I am, I am dying to self daily for that which is good for her. And it has a way of setting her apart unto her husband. Nobody else loves her like that. Not even her father, in some ways, loves her in this same way. He is setting her apart by the sacrificial nature and preferential na uh, uh, in relationship he has with her. Sanctifying her. And I love this in verse 27 there. His love is also instrumental in her glory. And I shared this in the past with some folks and, and more recently even. But this is the idea that I had in my mind. And this is primarily for husbands. Your wife is commanded here to submit to your headship. Okay, husbands, is your headship producing your wife in her glory? In other words, 
is, is the nature of your headship and her submission to it causing your wife to flourish under that headship or to become distressed and exhausted and emotionally despondent in regards to your headship. That is a good evaluation for husbands. Take a look at your wife. What, a, what is your leadership and your headship producing in her life? What does she look like? Is she becoming more glorious? Is she flourishing in her joy? Is she drawing closer in her intimacy? Is she more joyful and happy in Christ? Is she growing and radiating now as a more beautiful and adorned woman than the one you married? Your headship is producing that because Christ's headship produced that. He says that plainly. Love your husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he died for her so that he might sanctify her and set her apart and cleanse her and bring her back to himself in all of her glory. His headship is producing a sanctifying in her that is bringing her to the place of a greater joy. Husbands, that is a huge, huge responsibility. And I have to be the first to confess. There's a whole lot of my headship that gets exercised according to my own convenience and not in preference for the good of my wife. I, I pray that some of it is and even maybe most of it, but I recognize that I act in my headship in some ways that are irrelevant of what her good is or what is, what is most needed in her life to, to send her or to point her towards Christ. And maybe... You're a husband this morning that realizes that you've fallen short in that as well. It's kind of odd, but in verses 28 and 30, the fact that he's presenting her back to himself is almost a self-dying with a self-interest. He's not just throwing himself down to let her be liberated and go live as she was. He's throwing herself down with his own self-interest that he might receive his bride to himself more fully in all of her glory. And I think we can't do that like Christ does that obviously in the spiritual sense. But there is an application in which our headship should be doing that. It is for a self-interest. I'm not, I'm not exercising headship in my family because it's convenient or because it comes natural to me. It has a design in mind. It has, has the design of producing a flourishing wife which I can then receive back to myself and love her even more deeply and and it folds over year after year after year as we do that together wives mothers you are honorable you are honorable in the way your husband loves you sacrificially you are rendered or you are displayed as honor worthy in that he loves you this way in fact, His loving you like Christ loved the church contributes to your value, as it were, or your honorability when He loves you this way. In 1 Peter, 1, 3, 1, uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 7, the husband's love for his wife, he's to live with her, he says there, as the weaker vessel. A lot of folks get offended in that. I think if you want to take it this way, she is obviously, generally speaking, the weaker physical vessel. His, his duty in his dying of self is to be her protector and her guard. He is more capable physically. Some people may say constitutionally they are different in the sense that he would come to the forefront and he would, he would, he would be firmer. She may be more nurturing and more compassionate just by nature, especially in her fallen nature. So there is an understanding way to live with her. Husbands, live with your lives like 
that. It demonstrates her value. It demonstrates that she is honorable when you live with her in an understanding way. When you don't expect her to meet your demands as a man might meet your demands in the workplace. But you are tender and compassionate and gracious and merciful and long-suffering and, and understanding in regards to her. Here's, I love the second part of this. And also, for, for husbands, live with her as a fellow heir, a co-heir of the grace of God. The kingdom is as much hers as it is yours. I mean, she's not getting into the kingdom on your coattails. She is an individual heir of the kingdom through Jesus Christ. Your covenant relationship means that you can be instrumental in Him leading her ultimately to the, possess that, that kingdom, as it were. But you are both equally heirs of grace, of the grace of life. Her sanctification, your headship, her submission, all of these are manifestations of the grace of life. She's a co-partner in that sense with you. She's to be yielding to those graces in her life and you're to be yielding to those graces in your own life. She is a co-heir of the grace of life. She's not receiving her grace and life from you. You are not the source of that. Christ is for you and for her. She is co-heir. And for that reason, she ought to be honored. She ought to be honored, not as dependent upon you for that grace, but as having received that same grace from the same source as you yourself are receiving it and as it applies in you fulfilling your individual roles. I'm going to, I hate to move through these quickly and I might even come back. So that's the father, that's the husband. She's also honorable in her faithful submission to her husband. Ephesians 5, 22-24. I've already read that. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. She is to do this according and to and consistent with Scripture. Let me just insert here. A husband has no headship that would, that would allow him to command that his wife should sin. Her ultimate loyalty is to Christ. If his headship involves him insisting that she sins, she has to resist with the grace of God at that point. But if it is not an area where he's moving her to sin, her, her role, therefore, is to prefer his counsel in that moment. That's what's hard. That's what hards, and it demands something more of wives. But she is honorable if she can faithfully do this. She is to submit to him as her head. There is a spiritual and practical leadership assigned to her husband. She is to yield to that, not because he is superior in his intellect or in his theology even or in his physical apparatus, but because he is yielding, because she is yielding to what God has ordered in her home. She is trusting now in God that God would shape and guide her husband to lead her family as she submits to him. She is essentially submitting to God. That's what I mean by faithful submission. He says, as the church is subject to Christ. I wrote this, the husband does never usurp the place of Christ as her Lord and head. Rather, in the husband's obedience to Christ, he becomes a conduit for her obedience, for her obedience to that same Christ. So how is her submission to be worthy of honor? And this is where I think it's challenging for women. Because and I've had this conversation through the years as well. The word submission to me suggests, not always, and absolutely, but the word submission suggests something to me. I'm not exactly on board with that, but 
but because you have the authority in this matter, I'm yielding in this moment to your preference. I think of it in terms of employment. I used to do a lot of construction work, and before I did my own business, I would work for other people. And being in the field, I'd learn sufficient or efficient ways to do things that I think were exceedingly efficient over the one who hired me. But when he would come on the job, he had certain expectations. And since it was his company and I was under his authority, I yielded in that moment, not because I thought my idea wasn't as good as his. I knew my idea was better and more efficient. But he was the authority and I yielded in that moment to his authority and did it the way he did it. Even though I know it took longer and it was harder to do it his way, I yielded because I understood and recognized that he had an assigned authority over me and I was willing to live and work under that authority, even when it was against my better judgment. That's the challenge of submission. Submitting is not when your husband says, you shall not meet in a room with another man alone. And the wife says, she agrees with that wholeheartedly. And she says, absolutely, I wouldn't do that. It's crazy. Is she submitting there? Well, in some ways, but she's in agreement with him. She's, co- she's partnering with him in that, in that forbidding But now if he says something that she disagrees with and she actually thinks that she has a better idea and she legitimately thinks that his idea is not as efficient or not good, although not sinful, in that instance, she is to say, because he has been assigned headship in this family, I will yield now even against my own preference and choose his preference because God has ordained to use him to lead our families. And I am not trusting so much in him as I am in God to guide him. You see the difference there? That's the idea of submission. And I think a faithful and godly wife will will work through the sanctifying part to bring that about. It's not submission if your husband is dominating and oppressing and you're afraid of him and it all becomes a legalistic thing and you get worn out emotionally, spiritually, and every other way and you're not flourishing, you're going down the hill. Then husbands, you got something going on with your headship and wives, you've got some misunderstanding about what submission really is. But let me say this. This is honorable. This, is, this sets you, husband and wife, apart from culture and the world. This is elevating, elevating you to be honorable in the sight of your children and of the world because it is portraying Christ's relationship with His church. There is a headship and there is a humble church that submits to Christ's head even when the church itself thinks there might be a better idea. It yields to the Word of Christ because He is the authority in, our, in the life of the church. And so it manifests itself on a lesser scale in the relationship between a husband and a wife and in a family. And it makes a huge difference. She is to do this with respect in Ephesians 5, 33. In 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23, Jesus is given as the example of this sort of suffering. And it says there that he did this and endured this entrusting himself to the righteous judge. So in 1 Peter 3 and 3 through 6, he said, Submission is not to be begrudgingly. Servants, submit to your masters. He even says to the wives, if you have an unbelieving husband, show show by submission your chaste attitude and you will actually set him apart into the gospel because he'll see you behaving that way and he may be one to the gospel. 
So it's not always when your husband is in agreement with you about your course. Sometimes it's when y'all diverge that your submission demonstrates the power of Christ in your life. And women, you say, well, how do I do that? You do it like Jesus did. You keep entrusting yourself to the one who judges righteously. Do you think God is incapable, incapable of changing your husband's mind? I don't. Especially if he's a faithful Christian and if he's seeking the will of the Lord. The Lord can move him if you're right and he can bring the the husband to your position. Or he can bring you to the husband's position. He can work in that relationship. But he has assigned certain roles in that relationship. And I think man and woman, husband and wife are most honorable when they are living in those I've already mentioned this, but 1 Peter 3, 3 through 6, he talks about the adornment of this wife. It's not to be the outward adornment, but through this submission, she is adorning herself with the quiet, gentle spirit of the inward woman. Yes, she can wear her bracelets and she can wear her dress and she can be outwardly attractive and all those things. But the real attraction of the wife who is submissive in this way, not, not as a doormat, but in this way, demonstrates a quiet and a gentle spirit that is depending upon Christ and depending upon God and understanding that her husband is instrumental in God ministering to her and her family. And by consistently doing that, she adorns herself just like Jesus does with his bride, right? In Ephesians 5. Through the church's submission to Christ, he adorns her and returns her to himself in all of her glory. So too, Peter says, in the wife of the husband and wife relationship, as she submits in this way, depending upon Christ, she begins to be adorned and her husband sees her back to himself as this precious spirit of a gentle and quiet spirit that is trusting in him. And believe me, ladies, you're going to shift a huge burden on your husband if you know that, if he knows that you are trusting in him to act on your best behalf every single time. I ask hope this morning. Because it says here, wives, submit to your husband in everything. And I ask hope this morning. (laughs) Everything. That's big. That means in everything, submit to your husbands. You throw that back on me and it tells me that every decision I make in regards to my wife better have her best interests in mind because God has commanded her to submit to me in everything. That means she's subject to my exploitation and I'm subject to the judgment of Christ in regards to how I exploit her. So you see that the weight is huge on both husband and wife, mother and father. But all the blessing is infinitely glorious. Infinitely glorious. Wives, would you want to live for a husband who in everything chose always what was best for you? And husbands, would you not want to live with a wife who could absolutely trust that when you made those decisions, she always, she never had any doubt whatsoever that she was treasured and valued in your sight and in your self-sacrifice. Put a man and a woman like that together and you're talking about a marriage that glorifies Christ, you'll have one. And you'll have kids who have an analog of Christ relating to his church as they grow up underneath that kind of relationship between a father and mother, each fulfilling their God-given role. How will that affect the children? I say to the good. I say to the glory. So on this Mother's Day, I'm combining Mother and Father's Day. Honor your father and mother, children. 
but to mothers and fathers, myself and Hope included as grandparents, live and obey the Scriptures and live with Christ in ways that make you most honorable to your children. Don't make them strain and have to push so far back to the fact that you're created in the image of God and that's all they got to, to experientially to honor you about. Let them see you honoring Christ in your relationship and in your life. Give them much to honor you for on these holidays. And I pray that you'll spend this evening thinking about that and talking about that between husbands and wives because I think that's so critical. It's part of, it's always a part of counseling whenever I'm talking to folks who are going to be married. Whether or not that, that is an order that sounds appealing to them or whether that is diametrically opposed to our independent spirits. Because that's a sad place to begin a relationship if that's the case. So, having said that, with all my heart, happy Mother's Day. It is indeed something to be happy about. And happy Father's Day. Because it's, I'm happy because it's clear how we're to live this way. It's not hidden away. It's not disguised. We don't have to figure it out. We don't have to go see psychologists. It's laid out very clearly for us. The challenge for us now is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit by which we yield to what Christ has commanded and mandated in all of Scripture. That's the challenge. And husbands and wives, you have one of the best relationships ever for that dynamic to work itself out because with you there is love and there is grace and there is long-suffering, there is patience and there is all those things that are necessary to help one another to live more fully in the role for which Christ has called us. I pray, my heart is that you understand what I'm saying here. There's much more that could be said in regards to how that's manifested practically in the home and in the church and in society. And there are a lot of questions that rise up from there. But this is, I think, the heart of the matter. And so we honor our mothers and our fathers today. Stand with me. Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for the clarity of Scripture Lord, I thank you that such a design and, and such clarity exposes the inclinations of the flesh. Father, in our sinfulness, the, the, the father's, the husband's role of headship would be exploited to become oppression and dominion. And in the wife's fallenness, her submission might become begrudging and resentful and bitter. But Lord, I thank you that through Christ Jesus and the indwelling Holy Spirit and the truth of your word, these things in our experience can become wonderful, fulfilling, encouraging, and that both husband and wife could be flourishing in their individual roles to the glory of Christ. So I just pray for our mothers. Father, thank you for godly mothers. Thank you for our mothers who who ministered to us so many things in our life, so many practical helps, and our fathers who have given us guidance and, and ministered the same things. Lord, thank you for those blessings, those instruments in our lives to lead us to you. And Father, for those who may not have had those examples, Lord, I thank you that they are believers now and they have your word and they can be instructed to stop the generational, the, cycle, the cyclical degrading of that relationship and they in their own generation can begin to turn things back towards you. 
We pray for revival, especially here at the very heart of the institution of all civilization, the family, beginning with the mother and the father whom we honor today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.